Well, today we're going to continue our study of homosexuality and a biblically informed response to it. We have seen thus far that the study of this topic is more than a study of just one area of human sexuality. We have already seen that it really is a study concerning the authority of Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture. We have seen it is a study on the erosion of culture and idolatry. And today, we're going to see that it is a study about the character of God and the nature of temptation and how we can deal with temptation. So as we launch into part three of our series, let me read our foundational text again. It's Colossians 3, 17. And even though it doesn't address homosexuality directly, it has very important implications for this topic. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, and that includes your sexuality, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We've entitled our series, Oriented to Jesus, and today we embark upon part three. But first, let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to preach your truth and to not only be accurate in the teaching, but to be appropriate in the Spirit. And I pray that we would all receive your truth with appropriate spirits. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Charles Brent is hardly a household name. He served as a missionary for Christ to the Philippines many, many decades ago. And while he wasn't widely known even in his own day, he said something very profound about temptation, and I want to give him his props and quote him today. He said, quote, temptation may be an invitation to hell, but much more is it an opportunity to reach heaven. At the moment of temptation, sin and righteousness are both very near the Christian. But of the two, the latter, righteousness is the nearer. We're going to see that in our study today. Any biblically oriented discussion of homosexuality will always engender two very direct and challenging but appropriate questions. The first question, is it possible? Is it possible for those with the same sex attraction or inclination to either live with contentment and joy in a heterosexual marriage or to live the remainder of their lives in celibacy? Is it possible? Is it realistic? And the second question follows on the heels of the first. Is God unkind? Or as some suggest, is God cruel? when he prohibits homosexual conduct for those who have an inclination to that, even though it's an inclination they didn't consciously choose. Now, both of those questions are fair. Both of those questions are questions we need to be prepared to answer. And both of those questions call for a sensitive, respectful, thoroughly biblical response, not some threadbare cliché. 
you and I and the rest of the world doesn't fully comprehend all of the factors involved in a homosexual inclination. But there's one thing that we cannot deny based on thousands and thousands of testimonies. There are many people in our midst who have felt an inclination towards the same sex from their earliest recollections. They're not aware of ever having a choice. They're not aware of ever making a choice in the matter. Many who are followers of Christ say from my earliest sexual thoughts, I was attracted to the same sex. Many of those who are followers of Christ and even some who are not have prayed and asked God repeatedly, take this impulse, take this inclination away. That would seem to say it's not something they prefer. It's not something they have chosen. So they ask God to take it away, but often to no avail. Now I know that some Christians struggle with what I just said. They would come back at me and say, well, pastor, are you suggesting that God would create someone with an inclination towards sin? And my answer to that is no. God did not create us with an inclination towards sin. But in case you haven't noticed, we aren't what God created us to be. God gave our ancient shared ancestors, Adam and Eve, the great opportunity of free will, but the great responsibility of free will. And they abused that. And they opted for sin rather than following after God faithfully. And so occurred what we call the fall. And ever since, we have been damaged goods. David said, I came into this world with a bent towards sin. So God did not originally design humanity to have a bent towards sin, but ever since the fall, we all come into this world with an inclination towards sin. Sins like unbelief, selfishness, pride, envy, lust, anger, greed, gluttony, abusive speech, we're all born with those inclinations. Did anybody ever have to teach you to be selfish? Did anybody ever have to teach you to get angry when you don't get your way? Did you take classes in greed? Or have you known those inclinations from your earliest days? Are you still battling with some of those inclinations even though you've asked God repeatedly, take that inclination away from me? How many in this room have prayed for God to take away an inclination and you're still fighting with it? Let me see your hand. All right, at least some of you are truthful. <laughs> for the rest of you, next week we're preaching on thou shalt not lie. We have all known inclinations to sin from our earliest recollections, and we didn't choose those sins, did we? Was there a day in your life when you chose greed? Was there a day when you chose anger? Was there a day when you chose pride? No. So the question really is, 
is one sin worse than all the others? That's the real question. And Colossians chapter 3 again, but this time verse 5, answers that question with a resounding no. Because in Colossians 3, 5, Paul lumps all of those things I just mentioned, pride, greed, and so on, he lumps those together with every form of sexual immorality, and he lumps them together saying that all of these things are the predictable expressions of our old fallen natures. We come by all of these things naturally. We didn't choose them. Now somebody would counter, but pastor, a homosexual inclination is unnatural. It's contrary to the created design. And I'll grant you that. But I'd also like to suggest that all sinful attractions are unnatural because they contradict God's intended moral order. We understand that you only have to look at the anatomy of men to know that God didn't create men to have sexual intercourse with men. He didn't create women to have sexual intercourse with women. But what we don't grasp quite so clearly is that he didn't create us for sin. We were created in the image of God who knows no sin. Sin is very unnatural. If you understand how God created humanity, every time you sin, you are participating in a very unnatural act. That being said, I believe the answer to the questions, can a gay person live differently, is an unequivocal yes. And the answer to the question, is God unkind, is an equally unequivocal no. And let me explain why. First, God can empower any believer to live righteously. I want you to say those words with me. God can empower any believer to live righteously. Any believer. In Colossians 3 again, Paul indicated that sexual immorality, like all those other sins, is something that you can put off, that you can cast away, that you can put aside. But even more important for our consideration, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul spoke of former practicing homosexuals who were no longer engaging in homosexual conduct because of their new orientation to Christ. No longer. Say those two words. No longer. Now say them with fire in your belly. No longer. Those are two of the most powerful words in Scripture. Those are two of the most hope-saturated words in Scripture. You used to be this. You used to do this. You used to live like this. But you now no longer do that. That's the liberating message of the gospel. You can have a no longer movement and moment in your life through Christ. 
Those words indicate, when Paul used them, referencing the homosexual community, that people who have lived with the same-sex orientation can experience a change in their lifestyle, and that change can be sustained because the words no longer indicate continuance. So could a person inclined towards same-sex marry heterosexually and be content? The answer is yes. Many have, including some in this congregation. And they're not faking it. And they are genuinely content. Because in godliness, there is contentment. There's always contentment in godliness, whereas there's always unrest, have you noticed, in sin. Now that idea may seem unbelievable. But is it any more unbelievable than the idea that we so readily accept that if we submit our life totally to Christ, we'll suddenly be free? Isn't that a rather preposterous proposition? If you submit yourself totally to God, you will be free. But we accept that one readily, although it's not always easy to practice, is it? Now, concerning the matter and the feasibility of celibacy, Scripture indicates that a call to celibacy, hear me, is not a death sentence. <laughs> but it is a call to something noble. The contemporary Western church, and certainly Western culture, has short-changed and denigrated the single life and the spiritual gifting that accompanies it. But Scripture honors celibacy. Scripture puts the celibate on a pedestal rather than hiding them in the corner. Paul called celibacy a superior way, not an alternative for losers. And there's something we must never forget. All persons, say that with me, all persons outside heterosexual marriage are called to what? Celibacy. All persons outside heterosexual marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled, are called to celibacy. You see, the call to sexual purity isn't unique to the gay community. God isn't picking on gay folk. Every unmarried believer is called to celibacy. In reality, all of humanity outside of marriage is called to celibacy. The widow is called to celibacy. The widower is called to celibacy. The divorced man or woman is called to celibacy. We don't understand the blessing and the power that God intended in sex, and so we, we handle it badly. But celibacy, celibacy is God's call to everybody who isn't in a heterosexual marriage. Now, if that seems incredible, it's because we've lost sight of this important truth. Our bodies are not our own. How often do you hear that in our culture? Our bodies are not our own. Scripture says that the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. You see, when we reject God as creator 
And as we saw last week, that's at the root of what's happening in regards to homosexuality. When we reject God as the creator, we reject truth about ourselves as his creation. And one of the truths that we reject is that our bodies are not our own. You see, there is a definite correlation and tie between the militant atheistic evolution that is advanced with religious fervor and religious zeal in our culture. There is a tie between atheistic evolution and sexual immorality. Because if we are not created by a God, if we are here by chance, if we are the products of slime and time and blind chance, then we are nothing more than monkeys who know how to use iPads. And there are no moral absolutes, and there are no sexual guidelines. But if there is a creator, and if he knew you in your mother's womb, as he said he did, and if you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and if he has the very hairs of your head numbered, and if he knows you more intimately than you know yourself and knows the very thoughts and intents of your heart, and he made you, and he breathed the breath of life into you, and he made you a living soul, and Scripture says all of that, then your body is not your own. It belongs to God. Your body is on loan from God to be used for God's purposes. You belong to him, and he alone has the right to dictate what you do with your body. The loss of this truth is one of the key things behind the whole pro-abortion stance. How often do we hear people say, it's my body, no church, no government, no person has the right to tell me what to do with my body. And to that I say, honey, it's not your body. Your preposition is flawed. You begin with error and then you move to greater error because error always compounds with interest. Your body is not your own. Where were you when God formed you? Where were you when God breathed the breath of life into you? Where were you when God made you an eternal soul? Did he consult you? Did he need you? Did he involve you? Did you have a part to play in it? No, 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 and no. Your body is not your own. Remember that the next time somebody asks you to give it to them, for the satisfaction of their lust, even though they will couch it in terms of love. Your body isn't yours to give to somebody else. I'd love to see a generation of young women say to horny young men, I can't give you my body because it's not mine. It's God's. If you get a permission slip from him, I'll, I'll give it to you. You bring me a slip with his name on it, and I'll give you my body. You see, this is why the scripture says sexual sin, while it isn't worse than other sins, has a double-barreled effect upon a human being. Because all other sins, Scripture says, 
are committed outside the body, but sexual sin actually has an impact upon your body. When you engage in sexual sin, you not only damage your spirit, you misuse and damage your body, which belongs to God. And the principle of your body belongs to God and it's to be used for his glory not only pertains to homosexuality, not only pertains to heterosexuality, it pertains to things like gluttony and laziness and addiction as well. And I won't ask you for an amen there because it might be uncomfortable for some. I believe one reason why we struggle so to believe that God could actually sustain righteous sexual behavior or grant fulfillment in celibacy is because cultures that reject God often make an idol of sexual freedom and fulfillment. And sexuality is an idol in this culture. If the Victorian era pretended that sex didn't exist, the 21st century pretends that nothing else exists. We act as if sex is everything. Our culture tells us that to be human, to be fulfilled, Lord help us to even have a good weekend, you have to be sexually active. If you aren't sexually active, you're a loser. The very idea of restraint and principle seems preposterous. And even believers can succumb to this unrelenting brainwash to the point where within marriage they treat sexuality like an idol. Like the focal point of their relationship with their mate. So that if the sex isn't everything they want it to be, they're unhappy with their spouse. That's a very subtle form of idolatry too. Because the last time I read, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. They're not to ask their wife to act like a hooker so that they can get excited. That's idolatry. You see, if, if sex was so important to who we are, why does Scripture tell us that in heaven there'll be no marriage or giving in marriage? Fools build their identity on the temporal. The wise build their identity on the eternal. You see, in idolatry, God is reduced. That's what idolatry always does, while substitutes for God are inflated. In sexual idolatry, the sexual impulse is seen as more powerful than God. We have now spawned a generation of young men and women who are absolutely convinced of the power of the sexual impulse, but they have a very, very unworthy idea of the power of God. In short, we struggle with these truths because we have made God small and we have made sex big. And it's pure idolatry. As for the second question, is God unkind, even cruel in his expectations? Let me begin by saying, first of all, God is love and love is not unkind. God doesn't possess love. God is love. That's what he tells us in his word. God can't be unkind and cruel any more than you and I can be God. He can't do it. It's not in him. He'd have to step outside of his own nature. He'd have to be somebody else. So where God's word appears cruel, it's our understanding of God that needs to change. It's not God's character that needs to change. 
Secondly, even though we're all born with an orientation to sin that we did not choose, the presence of God's grace and power makes us all accountable, all accountable for our conduct. Do you hear anywhere in Scripture God saying, I know that from your earliest days you've had an inclination towards pride, so be proud. I know that you've had an orientation towards greed, so be greedy. Greed is good. No. God doesn't say that anywhere else. And he doesn't say it with homosexuality either. You see, God isn't asking any more of the gay community than he's asking of all the rest of humanity. Our temptations may differ, but we all have to face temptation. Spurgeon said, God had one son without sin, Jesus, but God has no sons without temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. Our battles may differ, but we all have battles to fight. You may fight a temptation that I can't understand, but I'm probably fighting some temptations that you don't understand. Nobody gets out of here without a fight. Nobody gets out of here alive, and nobody gets out of here without a fight. Okay? Because God didn't promise an end to temptation. He promised a way of escape. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to endure, but with the temptation will provide what? A way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The very word endure means it's not gone away the first time you pray about it. You may have to battle a particular temptation all your life. My hunch is all of us have some temptations we're going to have to battle all our life. There are areas of following Jesus that aren't that hard for us, but there are areas of following Jesus that are, thank you very much, really hard for us. And when he made that promise, a way of escape that you may be able to endure, did you hear there were no exceptions? He didn't say, unless you're gay. Or unless you're oversexed. <laughs> People used to use that term. I don't know what that means. <laughs> or unless you are by nature angry. No, there were no exceptions. And because there are no exceptions, there is hope in the gospel. You see, if you understand things correctly, accountability brings hope. If I'm accountable for my actions, that means I can make a choice to change them. That means there's hope. If I am what I am because you are what you are, or because of things I have no choice in, then I also have no hope. All I've got to look forward to is the same old, same old. So I would say, church, if we remove accountability from the gospel, we remove hope, and we have nothing to share with the broken world. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 indicates that inclination doesn't have to determine behavior. Behavior can be shaped by God. As one former gay activist, now in heterosexual marriage, says on his blog site, he said, I came to the point where I decided to be defined by my beliefs and my relationship with Jesus rather than my impulses. Everybody in this room has to make that decision. Everybody in this room. We began today with a quote that suggested that in every temptation, hell is near, but heaven is even closer.
that every temptation is an opportunity to gain Christ and the righteousness that stands close by. First century followers of Jesus understood that. Did you know that in the first century, converts to Jesus were best known and were widely known for their almost immediate, dramatic behavioral changes in the area of, drumroll, sexuality. Because the gospel came into a very sex-saturated world. There's nothing new under the sun. And the pagans marveled at how people who used to be involved in every form of sexual perversion were suddenly showing a profound sexual freedom. Freedom to say no to passions and impulses. Freedom to live righteously whether they were inclined heterosexually or homosexually. Freedom that empowered them to live celibate when single and to be faithful when married. And the pagan world, saturated in sexual perversion, looked at the Christians and said, Wow, we may not know what they're on, but whatever they're on, it's powerful stuff. That's what this culture needs to see. Judgment has to begin with the household of God before effective witness can take place out there. We're going to be talking about effective witness next week. And I've got to suggest to you next week that rather than living by the old adage of Augustine, love the sinner, hate the sin, I've got to suggest to you next week that we'd be better off to hate our own sin Hate all sin, and then love sinners. Because love the sinner, hate the sin, makes it sound like sin is always them. The effective witnessing church is the one that knows sin is also here. And if I'm not doing right by God in that area, it's rank hypocrisy and Phariseeism to call other people to do it. Or to make the acid test of your faith in Christ an inclination that you've never had to battle. Wow, that takes great courage. What about that one you've prayed about a thousand times and you're still fighting it? Let's make that the acid test of your faith. I'm convinced before we can witness effectively to the gay community, we've got to get the stench of Phariseeism off ourselves. Let me say in closing, in regards to temptation and the requirements of God, when God requires the best he knows we can be by virtue of his power, he doesn't say you do it on your own. That's not cruelty. That's not injustice. That's love. Love will always call you to freedom and blessing and significance and joy that is eternal. And when God says put off and no longer, that's not God being hard. That's God being gracious. That's God being loving. He's calling you to be oriented to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to assimilate these truths. Some of them will take a lifetime. Help us to get them right. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.